0: there. We just started out last week with this new series, beginning in Galatians, obviously in verse 1. We're continuing that today, so you can turn there. We're still in chapter 1. We'll be continuing our way through. Before we start that, though, I'd like to pray. So you bow your heads with me. Well, oh, Lord... Our hearts are prone to wander, Lord, as we sang in that song. And our hearts, our minds are, are prone to drift. Prone to drift away from You. Prone to drift away from the Gospel. But Lord, one of Your graces to us is Your Word through which You speak in the power of Your Spirit. And so Lord, we ask right now that You would speak to us, that You would bind our hearts securely to You. With the gracious ministry of Your Word, Lord, I pray that You would help me Protect me from error. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to incline our hearts to your testimonies. Holy Spirit, help us to open our eyes and our ears to see and hear. God, we want to walk closely with you. And we want to love Jesus more deeply. We want to understand the mystery of the gospel more fully. And we need your help for that, Lord. But we also recognize that the Word is Your Word, fully inspired by Your Spirit, and that it can assist us in that. And so I pray right now, Lord, that You would work powerfully in these next minutes. God, minister to Your people. Bind our hearts securely to Jesus. We pray that in Your name. Amen. Last night, I was together with some folks in the church, and we were watching one of the playoff games, and we were watching Tim Tebow fail in Tebow time, and it was a pretty epic collapse, but it reminded me of a time I was watching a playoff game with my brother, and we were both pretty young, and it was back in 1992, and if you remember back that far, the Buffalo Bills were a pretty good team, and my brother... And he, he's a couple years younger than me, so I was 10, he was 8 at the time. He was a diehard Buffalo Bills fan. You remember those, those string hats they had for a while back in like the early 90s? Like there was actually like shoelaces coming out the back of the hat that you would use to... So he had a Buffalo Bills string hat, and he had Buffalo Bills t-shirts, and he loved the Buffalo Bills. I mean, Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas and all of these players, Don Beebe, he, he loved them. He was all about the Bills. Well, you know, I was a couple years older, and I could remember what had happened the previous two Super Bowls against the Redskins and the Giants. And so I kind of had an inkling the Bills weren't going to win. And so I was kind of needling him, as big brothers are prone to do. And the game starts. You know, he's in all of his Bills regalia. He's wearing his colors. He's cheering for his team. You know, and then they just start to get pummeled by the Cowboys, and they are just getting the beatdown of all beatdowns in this game, and, you know, I'm an older brother, and so part of my job as I'm watching this, and I'm watching my younger brother's team just get destroyed, is I need to point this out to him, right, and I need to make sure he realizes, you know, you're a Bills fan, and the Bills are getting killed, your team is terrible, and so I'm just ribbing him, and I'm just mercilessly laying it on, well, by halftime, my brother was no longer a Buffalo Bills fan. (laughs) In fact, I laid it on so thick and my peer pressure was so intense that he actually became a Dallas Cowboys fan. And he ended up getting a Cowboys coat. And all of a sudden, he was on the Cowboys bandwagon. He had gone totally bandwagon. His team is playing in the Super Bowl and he abandoned them mid-Super Bowl. He, He jumped the bandwagon. Now, I've never let him live this down, and I'm convinced this clearly explains why he would then later become such an ardent New York Yankees fan. He just can't handle losing, and so he wants to cheer for a team with lots of money. And we can all think of bandwagon fans, right? And we all know, even if we're not a bandwagon fan, that we have that temptation when our team is doing poorly. Oh, you know, it, it would be easy just to cheer for somebody else right now. We've all felt that pressure, that temptation. We know what that's like when the going gets tough. Sometimes our passion starts to wane. Maybe our passion starts to to go somewhere else. At the very least, maybe we don't wear our team gear quite as much. Well, this morning, in our text, we're going to see a turn of passion. We're going to see a turn of passion, but the turn of passion that's taking place... The jumping off of the bandwagon is far more serious than just leaving your favorite NFL team behind. What we're going to see this morning, and what Paul is describing with stern warnings and really a breaking heart, is how the churches in Galatia are abandoning the gospel. They're abandoning the thing Paul was sure they had a passion for fresh off of their new faith in Christ, they're doing something far more serious than just exchanging favorite teams. They're exchanging Gospels. So one of the points of Galatians that Paul makes is just this ongoing theme in the letter. And he's writing this to professing Christians, so it should hit close to home to us. You think you know the Gospel, Galatians. You think you apply the gospel. And you don't. You think you understand the gospel. But in reality, as Paul will say later on, I don't think you fully understand it at all. And I don't think you sufficiently apply it. And I don't think you adequately love the gospel. And if you do those things, you prove that you've never grasped it to begin with. Now, Paul can say all of these devastating things because if the Galatians truly knew the gospel they wouldn't be turning away from it. They wouldn't be leaving it. They wouldn't be embracing a different gospel. Now, the stakes are the same for us. As we read this letter, we should have the same concern. And we should recognize that Paul's pastoral heart that gets a little harsh in this letter's at times should speak a warning to us. He wants to make something patently clear in this passage. I think the truth that he's driving home to these churches and to us this morning is this. Gospel desertion is a fatal decision. The truth in this passage that he's, he's driving at and pushing for is that gospel desertion is a fatal decision. If you, if you leave the gospel behind, it will have devastating consequences. So look with me in our text as we we seek to pull our minds around that truth this morning. Starting in verse 6, this is what Paul writes. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Gospel desertion, Paul is going to show us, is a fatal decision. And I want to sh- take four points to walk us through this text and to see the way that Paul is driving home that truth for us this morning. Now, the first point, the first thing that Paul is saying in this text is simply you turn to a different gospel. And you're deserting God. You turn away from my gospel and you turn away from God. Galatians 1 6, he writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, this is actually kind of surprising language. Typically, when Paul writes a letter to a church, he introduces himself, he addresses the people that he's writing the letter to. He'll have some sort of doxology in there where he worships God along with the church as he's writing the letter. And then typically, he praises God for them. He, he thanks God for them. There's a section of thanksgiving. And what's conspicuous by its absence in Galatians is there's no thank you. Paul, an apostle, right? Remember that from last week? Not according to man or through man, right? And then he goes on to lay out what the gospel is. And this is where, if you've ever read one of Paul's letters before, we should be expecting, I thank God for you, Galatians. I pray for you, Galatians. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel, Galatians. Silence. Now, this is especially surprising when we think, think of like a letter to the Corinthians. Think of the stuff that's going on in Corinth. Corinth. You've got super apostles who are trying to pretend like Paul isn't really as important an apostle as they are. You've got spiritual gifts just completely out of whack. And you've got massive immorality. You've got a man sleeping with his stepmother in the church, and the church is apparently condoning it. And in Corinth, in that letter... Paul expresses thanksgiving. Why not here? In fact, the difference is so startling, it's not just that Paul doesn't say thank you for them. He opens with a remark of astonishment and shock. Now, why the intensity, Paul? Well, he explains in verse 6 here Galatians is different, the doctrinal issues at stake. The things being attacked in Asia Minor, they are the most serious of any letter in the entire New Testament. I'm shocked, Paul says, because you're deserting the gospel. I'm astonished, which is really just a way of saying subtly, I'm appalled with you. Now here's what I think is interesting. Think with me for a second. Isn't this really sort of the opposite of how we react? Aren't we often more rocked by moral failures and financial foibles and scandalous sins that will beset a church? Isn't that what gets the headlines? Countless churches corrupt and obscure and add to the gospel of Christ. And we hardly hear a whisper. But a pastor cheats on his taxes. Well, That's front page headlines. Now I say that not to downplay the seriousness of moral and financial sin. Those are serious things. Paul doesn't hold back when he addresses those sorts of issues in other letters. But he's clear here. By not saying thank you and thanking the Galatians for their partnership in the gospel, he is making an obvious point. Those other moral issues, they're serious. Gospel desertion, that's deadly serious. Paul is righteously angry. He gives this severe rebuke to the Galatians, and, and, and I can't imagine him saying it any more sternly. I'm astonished with you that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. These churches are deserting the gospel for forgeries. And what what makes it so shocking is what we read about these churches in Acts. In Acts 13 and 14, there's this description of Paul's ministry here in Asia Minor, in Galatians. And he's, he's traveling through this area from city to city and all throughout the region. And one after another, wherever the gospel is preached, numerous people, Acts 13 and 14 say, are coming to know the Lord. From Pisidian Antioch to Iconium to Lystra to Derbe, Multitudes of Gentiles and Jews are hearing the gospel and they're repenting. Acts describes Jews and Greeks, cities, and entire region becoming disciples of Christ. It's almost almost like a Gentile Pentecost that's taking place in this region. So, yes, Paul is stunned. His astonishment is really a rebuke. I was just there with you. I was worshiping God with you. I can't believe you're doing this. It's an expression of pastoral distress. After such a short time, you're already deserting. How fickle are you? Now, Paul's language here is actually alluding to Exodus 32. Exodus 32 Paul sees a parallel, and we see it in the way that he talks. The words so quickly, that you're so quickly turning away from and deserting the gospel, echo Exodus thirty two eight, and what that is is the golden calf incident. Now, do you remember the story behind the golden calf? Israel has been saved and delivered from Egypt. They're brought into the wilderness, and there at Mount Sinai, God graciously covenants with them and promises to be their God and gives them the regulations of the law for how they should live with Him right? That's a story that's just etched into the consciousness of Jewish people. They know that story. And for generations, they've been convicted by that story, and they've been dumbfounded by the sins of their ancestors. How could they turn to idolatry so quickly? I mean, up on the mountain, the glory of God Almighty is surrounding Moses. And while that's happening at the base of the mountain, God's people are exchanging the true and living God for a golden cow. What in the world? Well, listen to the language that God uses when he speaks to Moses. He says in Exodus 32 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Does that sound familiar to our text? Paul is drawing on that image that just like Israel at Sinai, these Galatian churches, fresh on the experience of the gospel of grace, have turned to distorted impostors. And drawing on God's words in Exodus here, Paul is making a point. If you turn to a different gospel, Galatia, you turn to a different God. The same thing that the Israelites were doing At the base of Mount Sinai, when they create this idol out of gold, this calf, they're they're turning to a man-made God. Well, what I'm communicating to you is when you turn away from this gospel to a different gospel, it's not just that you're choosing a different gospel. You're not just choosing a different option for salvation. You're choosing a different God. I'm astonished that you would so quickly desert Him, God who called you in the grace of Christ. His point here isn't just that they're turning away from God, it's that you've been called in the grace of Christ. Now, he's alluding here not just to the fact that they've been called by grace, but that in the gospel and through the gospel, they've been called into the realm of grace. You've been called by Him in Jesus Christ into grace. You've been called out of what you were in, into a life of liberty in Christ, into a gracious way to live. And now you're turning back. And if you desert this realm, this life of grace, you desert God Himself. So you turn to a different gospel providence, and you turn to a different God. And the reason is simple. Our second point. There's only one true gospel. There's only one true gospel. In verse 7, he goes on to say, end of verse 6, you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Now, that almost sounds like Paul is implying here that there are other gospel options, right? I distinctly remember in, in undergrad, I was taking a class on the book of Romans, and the professor legitimately asked the question, so, One of the things we want to study this semester as we're working our way through Romans is just what are the different Gospels that Romans is talking about? And I just remember sitting there, you know, you're you're an impressionable young person. Different Gospels? What what does he mean? And he wasn't just asking it to to push us to embrace the one true Gospel. He was legitimately asking, like many so-called believers do. Aren't there just... Different expressions of the Gospels in the New Testament. Different ways that the different authors talk about being saved. He was legitimately asking the question and challenging us, what what different Gospels are we going to see in this book of Romans? What is Paul's Gospel, is one of the ways he put it. Because, you know, Paul has his Gospel, and James has another And if you read the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they've got a different way of talking about Jesus. His entire point was that the New Testament was filled with different Gospels. No. Paul makes clear in verse 7. A different Gospel is essentially no Gospel. How can you be turning to a different Gospel at the end of verse 6? He says, well, in verse 7, not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The reference to a different gospel doesn't imply we've got a bunch of options out there. Only one message is truly good news. Salvation is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the really scary thing about what we're reading in this letter. Paul's opponents, who are probably Judaizers, his opponents here are baptized Christians. They're not coming in and saying, These different Gospels is, you know, how you really get right with God is you worship Buddha. you got to turn to Islam. No, they're coming in with a similar message. They're still preaching Jesus as the Messiah. They're still proclaiming, as we'll see later in this letter, that you need to believe in Jesus in order to be forgiven of your sins. They're even proclaiming the cross. But they're not stopping them. Proclaiming all those things, and then adding to it. These teachers and influential people in Galatia, possibly from Jerusalem itself, have convinced these churches that Paul's gospel is the distortion. The words translated distort isn't implying that it's just a few sort of insignificant tweaks. It's implying that these little tweaks they're making to the gospel, these little distortions... They're flipping it upside down. They're turning the entire message inside out. It makes the changes that alter the message significant, even if they seem minor at first blush. I love J.I. Packer, just such a pithy quote. A half truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. So, Paul is battling here in Galatia. It's, it sounds so similar, it sounds so close. The so-called gospel of his opponents, Paul says, might sound close, but it's no gospel at all. It's actually twisting the truth of salvation in Christ. And his point is, any adjustment to the gospel robs it of grace. You either stand in the grace of the true gospel, or you replace it with these tweaked distortions that are devoid of the grace of Christ. And every tweak to the gospel, every little movement, results in a loss of the gospel. What makes the Judaizers so dangerous is that they aren't attacking the gospel outright. They're just promoting these really subtle counterfeit gospels from within the church. And the trick is they know all the right lingo. They're talking about Jesus, right? They're talking about salvation. They're talking about faith. We could probably even say they're in the care groups. They're sitting next to you. The same thing happens in the church today. That professor I had in college, he would have called himself a Christian. John Stott says helpfully in his commentary on Galatians, the church's greatest troublemakers now, as then, are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute, but those inside who tried to change the gospel. Now, later in the letter, Paul is going to start going into detail about what these distortions are. What are the little tweaks that are being made to the message? And I could go into it here, but let's hold off. Let's wait until Paul goes into that to unpack all those sorts of things. Let's let's instead spend the time looking at what he's looking at in this text. He'll deal later with what the adjustments are, what the different gospels are, but he's not concerned with that now. He's just pointing out, There's different Gospels going on, but I want to point you to what happens if you leave the true Gospel. Now, what he does tell us next is this is the consequence in verse 8. But even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a Gospel contrary to the one that I preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Brings us to our third point. You turn to a different gospel. You're turning from God, right? You're deserting God. That's point one. The second point is, the reason for that is there's only one gospel. You move away from that gospel and you've moved away from God. The third point is, those people who are distorting the gospel... Will they receive a curse. Do you see the danger of what he's warning us about? There's only one gospel. And if you walk away from it, Paul says, you walk away from God. So you desert this gospel and you cut yourself off from grace. Which is really Paul just saying in another way, that if you walk away from this gospel, you're cutting yourself off from God's power. Listen again to how Paul describes The desertion in one verse six, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. That you're turning to a different gospel. Now, the language of calling can kind of seem sort of benign to us. And when when we think of calling, we think of, you know, a call happens and you either respond or you don't. But what Paul's talking about here is not the call you receive on your cell phone and you just decide to silence it. I'm not going to deal with that right now. I'll just I'll listen to it later. That's not the kind of calling that the Bible deals with. That's not how Paul speaks about calling. What he's saying is the authentic gospel is seen in the power that the words contain. He talks about this explicitly in Romans 1. We're so familiar with the passage, but sometimes I think we miss what he's saying. So I am eager, he says to the Romans, to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why, Paul? Why do you want to preach the gospel to them? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. What he's saying is, when the authentic gospel is preached, it conveys power. It accomplishes exactly what it intends to accomplish. That's the calling that Paul is talking about here. The true gospel of grace comes, and it's not just words that come. When the true gospel of grace comes... There's power in those words because they are God's words. God's word is power. It creates, it accomplishes what it wants to. And so the gospel is the call of God by grace. So why are we talking about all that? Well, Here's the rub. If the gospel is distorted, it's stripped of its power. If it no longer carries the power of God, that tweaked gospel is now stripped of grace. Script of grace because you've cut it off from the author. You've cut it off from God and His power to create and accomplish by His words. So, you see the danger? If you turn from the gospel, you turn from the power of God for salvation, which leads Paul to drop the hammer on his opponents. These aren't nice words you just toss out to somebody at your Christmas party. Oh, good to see you again, John. Let you be accursed. What? He's barely into the letter, and he claims he's praying and expecting that the prayer will be answered, that these individuals will be cursed by God. Well, they're reversing the gospel. They've turned it inside out. They've robbed the gospel of its power. They've removed it from its grace. And so by doing that, they're leading people from God. You mess with these things, Paul says, you mess with these things, and you will be accursed. And I'll pray that you're accursed. And that's as bad as it sounds. What he's talking about there, the words that he's using, he's not saying... I hope you're accursed. I hope it's like when you break a mirror and you have bad luck, right? No. He's not talking about, I hope you're accursed and you have a bad week. He's talking about eternal destruction. To say someone is accursed is literally the word means to say that they've been devoted to God for destruction. You distort the gospel, Paul says. And you're going to hell. And this is what he says in addition. And not just if you distort it, you're going to hell. I don't care who you are. You mess with the message, and eternal eternal destruction is your lot. Even if it's me, Paul says. Even if I'm the one messing with it. Even if it's a messenger from heaven. Even if an angel comes to you and says, This is God's message. This This is an addendum to the gospel. Paul says, You're accursed. Now, that should sound a little familiar you think of something like mormonism the angel reveals the new gospel hmm. it's almost like paul's prophetic here i don't care who comes with the message if the message changes that messenger is accursed now the bottom line is when you're dealing with the gospel it's not the credentials of the messenger. Paul says it doesn't matter how much street crud the person coming and talking is. Even if Peter comes and tweaks this message, Peter will be accursed. Luther makes a great point in his commentary. He says, if Paul or Peter or an angel tweaks the message, they'll be accursed. But if Judas or Pilate or the high priest come and they preach the right gospel, people will be saved by. It. Now, he's over-exaggerating things to make a point. It doesn't matter who's speaking it. What matters is the content. Are they proclaiming the message accurately? Paul's not going to get into a fight over who should be more significant. He's just going to point us to the message. And if you mess with that, Paul says, even if I mess with it, hold me accountable to it, Galatians, you go to hell. Now, if the gospel distorters of the message are going to hell because they're stripping the gospel of its power to save, what does that say for the people who believe the perversions? I think that's an implication Paul is trying to help the Galatians to see that we need to see. You get what this means, Galatia? people who are peddling this garbage to you they're going to hell because they've been cut off from God but if you buy into this garbage they're selling you'll end up in the same place you want to know why Paul is so angry in this letter because he sees churches filled with people are on the brink of destruction. They're literally in the process of turning away from God. And then, suddenly at the end, Paul concludes with something that just seems almost out of place, right? You're reading along, and he, he drops this anathema on his opponents in Galatia. And then in verse 10 he says, "'For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man?' If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here's our final point this morning. Gospel desertion feeds on the fear of man. I think Paul is saying that by way of stating the opposite. In Paul, what he says, In my life... Fear of man has been totally broken. Now, fear of a man, some of you are sitting here thinking, fear of man, what in the world is fear of man? I'm not afraid of man. I'm afraid of cancer. I'm not afraid of man. When he says fear of man, when I talk about fear of man, we're talking about things like peer pressure. We're talking about caring more about what people think about you than what about God thinks about you. And then acting in accordance with those fears. Well, Paul says, I don't care anything about trying to please people. My express goal, my only goal, is to please God. Now, if Paul is seeking to garner favor with people, this point here, if I'm trying to win a popularity contest, I'm not going to write a letter where I'm yelling at you, Galatians. That's not how you get popularity. I'd come and woo you. Oh, I love you so much. Please come back to my message so we can be friends again. If Paul really cares about what people think, Is he going to walk in and start cursing people and saying, you're cursed and you're going to hell and you're going to hell. And all of you people, if you follow them, you're going to hell too. How to win friends and influence people, right? You yell at them and the people they like, you curse and condemn to hell. No, not at all. Paul's whole point is, if that was my goal, I wouldn't be doing any of this. I'm emphatically saying I've preached the gospel from A to Z. I've left nothing out. And contra the accusations of my opponents, you know the whole gospel. Fear of man has been broken in me. But here's his point, I think, that he's making. All I care about, Paul says, is pleasing God. And part of your problem, Galatians, is that you still care about pleasing men. Part of the reason you're being tempted right now to turn away from the gospel is because you care more about what people think and about what people say than about what God says. The implication is that where fear of man is not broken, gospel drift can settle in and here's why the gospel it glorifies god not man right the gospel doesn't make people sound real good the only way you get to sound good in the gospel equation is if you admit you know what i'm bankrupt without jesus my sins are terrible and i need to be saved It makes God seem incredible. It makes God seem glorious. It makes God seem worthy of praise. And that's not what our flesh longs for. Now, remember that opening illustration of my brother with the Buffalo Bills? He's eight years old. We'll give him a break. But why does he care? Why does he switch allegiance to the Cowboys? Why does he desert Bruce Smith and the Bills because he cared about what I thought because what I thought mattered more to him than his commitment to his team there's massive amounts of peer pressure going on in our living room during that Super Bowl a little manipulative 10 year old is making fun of his 8 year old brother and the 8 year old boy succumbs to the peer pressure Okay, I'll be a Cowboys fan worked really well for a few years. It's not working so well now. Sorry, Woody. (laughs) And we can look at that and think, oh, yeah, it's so silly. But we're tempted in bigger ways to act and operate the same way. That's the potential that fear of man has due to us, ultimately. Luther says this in his commentary on Galatians. This, preaching the gospel, is not preaching that gains favor from men and from the world. For the world finds nothing more irritating and intolerable than hearing its wisdom, righteousness, religion, and power condemned. For if we denounce men and all their efforts, it is inevitable, it is inevitable, it will happen, that we will quickly encounter bitter hatred, persecution, excommunications, condemnation, and execution. You embrace this gospel that shows the world all of its failings, and the world will not be pleased with you. the striking thing about the class I was taking in college from that professor was that that professor used to be an elder at one of the most faithful gospel-loving churches in the world. He he was an elder at Bethlehem Baptist. For some of you, that means something. He he was an elder and the right-hand man in some ways of of John Piper early in his career. He, He loved the gospel. Some of the best New Testament scholars of our day and age, D.A. Carson and men like him. This man studied under them and and helped D.A. Carson write some of his most influential books. He actually, in some of the earliest editions, is honored in the introduction, in the acknowledgement section of one of those books. This man at one point understood the gospel. He knew the gospel and he claimed love the gospel. But that's Paul's whole point, right? Not just that gospel desertion is fatal, but lest we be deceived, there's a little part of every one of our hearts that's prone to desert. We sang the song this morning, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave. the God. I feel it in my heart, in my soul. The proneness of my flesh to wander away from Christ. To wander away from this gospel. And Galatians reminds us every generation Every generation must recommit itself to standing for the gospel in the midst of the perennial danger of compromise and potential loss of the same gospel. And it reminds us, gospel desertion is fatal. If you leave the gospel, you leave God. And it reminds us, bringing it close to home, it's a temptation we all face. If we will stand for the gospel, then we have to die to fear of man. That's Paul's point in verse 10. If you want to stand for God's glory alone, like I want to do, Paul says. If you want to be a servant of Christ, like I want to be. And by God's grace, I've got to learn to love what God says and what God thinks about me more than what man says and what man thinks about me. We've got to die to the desire for man's praise. In fact, we've got to content ourselves to look foolish, Luther says. You've got to prepare yourself to be despised, to get that nasty label of intolerant. Because the gospel's intolerant. And in an age that worships tolerance, if you care what man says, you will be assaulted with temptations, to turn to a different, more tolerant gospel. And if we wander into that different, more tolerant gospel, then we wander away from the exclusive power of the gospel of Christ crucified to save us. Would you pray with me? God. We are prone to wander. We sang that in the song earlier today. And we've all felt that in our hearts. We've all felt that temptation to walk away. To allow our passion for you, our passion for Christ and Him crucified, our passion for the gospel, to dim that temptation to allow our passions for worldly things like sports and, and money and reputation and health and family to become greater and to eclipse our passion for the gospel, which is ultimately our passion for you, God. And so, Lord, we ask humbly for your help. Lord, by your grace, help us to remain standing in the gospel. By your grace, fill us with the sustaining power of your gospel. Lord, by your grace, help us to put to death fear of man and the craving to win the approval of men. God, I pray that you would make us here at Providence, make me, make these people, give us Paul's heart to be consumed with your glory and your honor and your praise over everything else, to the exclusion of everything else. Jesus, would you do that? Lord, we thank you for your promise that you who began a good work in us will see it to completion.